Our passage begins this morning with David having finally arrived. He now dwells in a palace of cedar. He is at the highest of heights. He is now king over the nation, undisputed. His nation is secure and established. All the enemies seem to be silenced in defeat. And David has recognized that all of this has come from the hand of the Lord. It has all been done by pure grace, God's gift and initiative. And in an acknowledgement of that, David wants to do something for God. We might have that same sense of gratitude. Many of us see all the things that God has given us in this life. Perhaps it, it is a healthy family, or a career, or uh, just life itself. And we acknowledge that that has just come from the, the Lord's hand. And it seems like the noble thing to do is to respond, to give him back something in return. It's the sincere desire of many Christians who have, you know, quote-unquote, made it, to want to give something back. In return, looking at all that he has, David wants to build God a house. He wants to build him a temple. And even checks with the prophet Nathan to make sure that that's an okay thing to do. And the prophet gives him the thumbs up. Go ahead, David. Do all that your heart desires because you're walking with the Lord here. And yet, shockingly, God tells David, no. He rejects David's offer. Why? I'm sure that response is perplexing to David, but it's the rest of this passage and the rest of the things that God has to say that should really astound us. For the rest of the passage reveals that that David has actually not seen the whole picture. He is acknowledging God's grace, and that's good. But his view of God's grace is too small, and God needs to blow the doors off of it. He needs to open them up to all that he's been doing. And so let's take a closer look at this passage, and let, us, let it challenge us to ways in which we may be limiting God in his grace, and open, it, open us up to the things that he is about and, and his purposes for us. So before we get to this word, let's pray. Will you join me? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it will bring life into us. That you might open our eyes not only to um, what you have been doing, but what you will be doing, what you are deeply about. Uh, Give us a glimpse of that so we might be more faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when God turns down David's request to build a temple, it actually exposes a couple of assumptions that David has been working under, a couple of faulty assumptions. First is rather obvious. It's what, what God says directly to David. It's, it's that David should be the one to do anything for God. You know, David gets the relationship backwards. In verse 5 and in verse 11, God pretty much says, You are not to build something for me. I'm the one that's supposed to build something for you. 
reminds me of like haggling over the check, okay? Hey, you're not going to honor me with paying for the meal. I'm going to honor you. Uh, but you have to pay attention to, to the way in which God expresses this. It, it's, it's got a certain playfulness with David. That it, that it is not trying to rebuke him, but, but tries to show that, that God really is much bigger than he, than he thinks. Verse 6, he, he says, uh, God says to David, uh, you know, thanks for the offer, but I've sort of been making out okay these last thousands of years. You know, I really uh, appreciate that you might want to build me a house, but, you know, I, I, I've been doing okay in this tent moving around, and, you know, I didn't really ask for a house. Um, never asked Moses for a house. Never asked any of the, the judges for a house. I'm okay. But then he starts digging at a deeper point. Very subtly, this offer of gratitude could have some strings attached. And to really understand that, we have to go back into the ancient world. And, and there are uh, many instances, many examples that we still have records of where kings of, of major kingdoms in the ancient world uh, built temples for their god for a very specific purpose. We have examples from Egypt and Assyria and ancient Sumer, where these kings were designing these temples, and in their speech, as they dedicate these temples, it was very clear that what they expected was military success and prosperity as a nation. It's a way of pinning God down and keeping him close. But David should know that God's grace doesn't work like that. It's not earned. God cannot be bribed. The relationship can't get reversed. However much it seems as though we're returning God uh, a favor from what he's done, very subtly what we're doing is attaching strings, trying to get him to respond. But his grace is a gift. The second thing that is behind this uh, request is, and, and God's response of no is that it helps David see that he hasn't yet arrived. I mean, the assumption that David makes in verse 1 is that he has made it, that he's reached the goal of where grace was always intended to bring him. Again, the expression of thanksgiving might come with that idea that we know where God was always intending to bring us that we know the purpose of his grace and that will culminate in whatever it is we've been hoping for. As if his goal was simply to get you out of college. Or perhaps his goal was to get you married. Or his goal in, of his grace was to get you into a career or to get you to the point of retirement or to get you to a certain perspective in life that you think is the highest end. When you get there, You'll thank him, because his grace got you to that place. But God's response to David is essentially, my plan for you has not arrived yet. Verses 8 and 9, he says, yes, I chose you. And you weren't much when I chose you. You were chasing sheep out in the fields. But hear this, David. My plan for you wasn't simply to get you from that low point and bring you up to being a king. In fact, my plan 
wasn't even for you to be the greatest of all kings. You have to step back and see what I have been doing. God needs to stretch David's vision of what he is all about. And we get from verse 4 to verse 17, one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. It's the longest speech that we have since uh, God spoke at Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments. And so we should expect that this is something significant. David, uh, God here, makes a covenant with David. And it's a glimpse at the fullness of God, the fullness of his plan. And it's far bigger than what David has imagined. And I want to explore different ways in which this bigness of God's grace is now evident. And so let's look at these. First, this covenant shows us that grace is bigger than you. It's bigger than David, and it's bigger than each one of us. I know that's counterintuitive. I think most of us see almost everything designed in our culture pointing to us and about us. And it's very easy to turn Christianity into another tool to serve us, our goals, and our needs. You know, it is, it is uh, more likely that a Bible will show up in the self-help section than any other section in the bookstore. Why is that? Because we want to use it to serve our ends and our purposes. Notice something about the promises that he makes in verses 9 and 10. He's he's saying a blessing to David, and he's trying to say, what I'm going to give you is amazing for you, but it goes beyond him. It seems like just about David at at first. He says, I'm going to make your name great, David. I'm going to appoint a place for you to dwell. Those two promises, though, are significant. Making your name great and land. And if we were attuned to major parts of Scripture, they should echo very loudly in our ears. In fact, they were a call back to a promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12-15, he is there giving these same promises. God isn't just making a promise here to David. He's building on the greater promise. And it's not simply a promise to David as an individual. It's been a promise to all of God's people. And in fact, if we go back to the promise made to Abraham, it's a promise to bless all nations. It's bigger than David. Verse 12, he says that when your days are filled and you die, I will raise up this offspring. You see what he's doing here? He's saying that this is even beyond your lifetime. Things aren't really going to kick in until you die, David. Think about that. Israel had never had a dynasty before. And David is the second king. The first king was Saul. And David is not his son. But none of the judges operated on this pattern either. And here, God is establishing a dynasty. And that in itself would be remarkable. That God was going to bless David so much that he was going to extend his line into the future. And we might think that that is incredible. 
even looking at what he does here, David's line will last for 400 years. You look around to the other uh, kingdoms in the ancient world, and that is roughly four times the length of any other dynasty. It's, it's pretty much twice the length of the greatest dynasties in the ancient world. And we could stand back and say, that is incredible what God did here to this nation. Isn't that a sign of God's hand, that he can make a kingdom that great? But God isn't in the business of dynasty making. God didn't just walk around saying one day, oh, hey, you guys can do some great nations, but hey, wait till I get a crack at it. You know, cracking his knuckles and basically saying, all right, let me show you what a good dynasty looks like. No, his plans were far greater than just building a successful kingdom. It's bigger than a nation. It's bigger than David. It's bigger than his sons. His promise goes beyond Solomon. It goes beyond the temple. And some see that the promise here being fulfilled in David's son, Solomon. As Solomon is the one who will build uh, the temple. But verse 16 makes it really clear that this kingdom is not going to just end with Solomon. It doesn't even reach its goal in Solomon. with Solomon. It will last forever. Yes, Solomon's temple is great, but what God is building here is bigger than anything man can construct. This promise is far more than just that David is going to have this long, prosperous genealogy. It's bigger than David. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. Grace is bigger than you. And I know that can sound deflating, but I want to invite you to think about that as really good news. Because what happens when we make grace all about us? What happens when we make grace as the thing that is going to serve us to get us to prosperity? What happens when we make grace simply God granting us privilege? What happens when we think grace is that thing that puts us in a high position? When we view grace like that, we're going to view it like a loan. That God has somehow invested in us. And if God invests in us, well, as anybody who has experienced privilege knows, we better not blow it. We better make good on this investment. When you think that God's grace ends in your little kingdom, You'll feel the pressure to be worthy of what he's invested in you. Whenever you invest in anything, what you're saying is, I put my trust that the thing I invest in is actually going to make good on the money I put in, right? That's how investment works. You you put your trust in either the company or the individual or whatever it is to say they're going to extend past my initial outlay and actually be productive with something. But what happens when we turn God's grace into that? He has given me this career. He has given me this life. He has given me these gifts. And I need to actually do something with it that is significant. Talked to many Yale students. Remember a conversation with an undergrad years ago. He says, well, I need to take that now. This, this lottery ticket of, of being at this institution. And I can't settle for a normal life. I can't go into an average career. Certainly couldn't go into ministry. I have to do something amazing 
something worthwhile, something impactful. If that's your experience of grace, if that's what you think grace was there to to get you into position, then you're going to run your entire life with the fear of regret. You're going to fear that you're not maximizing your value. Now, don't get me wrong. I need to balance that out by, by many scripture affirmations that say we need to be good stewards of what God has given you. Yes. But God is not a venture capitalist. God is not looking around to find what might be the best investment of his time so that he can get something out of you because he needs you to conquer the world. He doesn't need your work. You are his work. He doesn't desire to get more work out of you. He is trying to get more grace into you. That is his plan for your life. And seeing your life as a calling to be obedient to wherever he is leading you. Because his plan is bigger than you. God's grace in David's life is bigger than David. It's bigger than David's prosperity. It's bigger than the kingdom of Israel. God's creating a kingdom that will redeem the world. And he allows David to become part of it. But make no mistake, the the heir that comes out of David will be David's Lord, and David must bow to him. This is the passage where the concept of Messiah becomes central, both to Israel and Judaism and Christianity. This is the idea of having a representative, a representative that can stand for all people. And this was a bit of a change. Up till now, Israel as a whole had been operating on this idea of their obedience equals God's blessing. Their disobedience equals God's cursing on a typological level that had uh, real-world implications. They were always still saved by faith in the promise and the hope of Christ to come. But what they worked out as a nation reflected on their obedience. That was the Mosaic covenant. When they were faithful, God would bless them. And they have a history of sinning and facing punishment. With this promise here, we see Israel's role now being tied up in the king. Israel is going to follow how the king goes. And when the king uh, is, is obedient and follows faithfully, the nation will follow faithfully. And God will bless them. And when the, na- when the king goes into idolatry and sin, the nation will follow. And God will punish. This whole idea of the principle of representation takes on a, a, a significance here. We see God zeroing down on someone who will stand for the people. And, illustrate, and, and to illustrate that, we see this concept of calling the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 14, God gives that distinction to the king. That had always been something that God had called Israel. Their people, the whole people, was the son, they were sons of God. And here he says about the king, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This isn't son of God as in second person of the Trinity. 
acts as a representative, the one to stand for all of God's people. God is setting the stage with this promise to, to David for another Adam, another individual to stand for the whole. God's grace is much bigger than David. That's the first point. Second point, grace is not only bigger than us, it's also bigger than our sin. Now, this is probably not too earth-shattering for many of you, I hope. I hope that many of you have learned that great definition, that, that grace means God's unmerited favor. It is a good definition. He forgives us. He saves us. Not based on anything that we have done, but only according to his good pleasure. It's his choice to love us. It's his choice to bless us and to forgive us. And we confess that. But we need to move that unconditional love from merely a confession to our experience and to something that we rely on. And this was something Israel desperately needed. For now that the king was going to stand for the people, what happens when the king sins? What happens if the king were to drift off into idolatry? What happens if the king was, was to abandon the principles, the faith, of Israel. Well, for Israel, this wasn't just a possibility. It was a certainty. And it's, you know, maybe some comfort to know that it wasn't a surprise to God either. He says in verse 14, when the king commits iniquity. Notice he didn't say if the king were to commit iniquity. He says when the king commits iniquity. One might say here that, that David's the high point of Israel's kingship. He's got his own problems, but it goes downhill very quickly from this point on. Not just with Solomon, but, but all the heirs of David seem to wander away. In fact, even David, you know, he's just a couple chapters away from, from adultery and murder. What will God do? What's God's response going to be? Well, you know, if we stopped at verse 14, we should be deathly afraid. Verse 14 says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. You see, God's not going to let the sin slide. He is going to bring in recompense. As with the covenant of Moses, which is still operative here, there will be a response. And it doesn't take too long for that response either. When, when Solomon sins in 1 Kings 11, God responds to him saying, I'm going to tear this kingdom from you. And just leave a little bit left. The kings will continue to sin following Solomon. And so God is going to bring in the Assyrians to attack and destroy a good chunk of Israel. And the people still sin. And the king still sins. And so God brings in Babylon, this great nation, to not only destroy them, but to start carting them off into exile, taking them back to Babylon. And in fact, you see the king himself in chains. Did Israel, at that point, cross the line? Did her king sin so badly that the whole of the promise was disqualified? Amazingly, what we see in Israel's scriptures, through all this sin and through all this discipline, is that God's people kept coming back to this passage. They kept coming back to this promise that was made 
Why? Because, amazingly, God's promise didn't end in verse 14. There was verse 15. And in between those two, there is the word, but. And it's a great theological lesson to say, whenever Scripture comes in with this sentence, or this word, this tiny word, but, you should pay attention. James Montgomery Boyce, who used to be the late, late pastor of uh, 10th Pres in, in Philadelphia, used to say that, that Christians would do well every time they face adversity to remember those two little words, but God. It is significant. It is powerful. It's transformative. Think of the ways in which it, it's used in Scripture. Ephesians 2 might be the best example of it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God was rich in mercy. Verse 15, we get that. God is going to discipline, verse 14. He's going to, he's going to um, uh, with the rod of men and the, stripe, the stripes of the sons of men, punish. But, but, my steadfast love will not depart. And so Israel comes back again and again throughout their history to this passage because they hold God to his word. Psalm 89, God says, I will not violate my covenant or my words. I have sworn and I will not lie. I I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. When they're sitting in Babylon and they're in what seems like the worst scenario, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for you. Uh, for David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. There are passages in Isaiah and Amos and Hosea, all in the middle of what could be considered a lost cause, all preaching in what you might think is the lowest point in Israel's history, all of them facing darkness and tempted to say, we've sinned to the point where God is fed up with us, God has clearly shown that he has abandoned us, But instead of going in that direction, they all say, remember this promise. God is going to raise up a root from the branch of of Jesse. God is going to remember this promise he made to David. There will be somebody else on this throne. Think about that. Think about that practice of the prophets again and again, going back to this passage. There's two quick things I want to show about this practice of the prophets that we need to hear. First, their hope wasn't in their ability to get better in order for this promise to kick in. It wasn't in their hands. God wasn't holding out redemption and saying, okay, I got this promise, it's an awesome promise, but you got to get your act together in order to capitalize on it. Once you clean yourself up, the, the promise is going to be good. No. This message was preached in the middle of despair, in the middle of saying, we have blown it, and we are not worthy. But God. But God is not going to abandon us. It's the message of Christianity. You think grace is contingent on you cleaning your life up, reforming yourself, getting back on the wagon again, and then you can approach God. You are going to miss out. Is that the point when you think, I cannot get back on again? That you need to come and draw near to him. 
that you need His means of grace. It's in the middle of your sin. It's in the middle of your despair. But second, looking at what they're doing here, these prophets pointed only to the word of promise. That was enough for them. This word was enough. This word to David. And we think, well, I mean, come on. Talk is cheap. I'm sure it's a promise from God, but we need to see something concrete, something tangible. In fact, something we can control. And many of us are more comfortable if we could just pin God down. If we could not only have his promise, but put him in our debt in some subtle way. Maybe if I'm just productive. Maybe if I run the course really well. Maybe if I'm kind to other people. If I can stay faithful and do all these disciplines. Then that, joined with this promise, is really going to hold God to make sure that he'll be good to his word. It would compel God. Building a temple was sort of like that. It pinned God down. But God is free, and he won't be confined by the ways in which we try to manipulate him. But in his freedom, he will not go against his word. And it was his good pleasure to give this promise to God's people. You know, you think about the early Christians. And when they see Jesus, and they claim that he is the son of David, they're celebrating. Why? Why did they celebrate so much? quoting often that he is the son of David, or quoting psalms or passages that refer to Jesus as the son of David. Not because they think he's going to have these great genes that David had. It's not biological. Not because they they look at David's kingdom and say, oh, he's going to reign just like David and give us a nation that's going to be at peace. It wasn't even just that he was the heir of the throne. Though that was important. But the idea behind all of this was because God now in Jesus had fulfilled this promise. God rose up a son of David. It was pointing to the promise. Your sin cannot destroy the promise of God. Now while Christ is on the throne, now when we know that he is raised even your anxiety will not destroy the promises of God. Our call is the same. Throw yourself on his bottomless pit of mercy. He is good to us. His grace is greater than our sin. Finally, and briefly, grace is bigger than you, it's bigger than our sin, and it's also bigger than death. Grace is bigger than death. I mean, all the good news in this passage seems to begin with a lot of bad news. David, you can't build the temple. And in fact, it's not even going to happen in your lifetime. All the really amazing messianic promises here happen in verse 12, or after verse 12, when God says, okay, it's all going to start when you die. And David's got to think, oh, great, thanks, God. Appreciate that. Couldn't you do anything here in my lifetime that will... Show me these promises. David was looking for a hope that he could tangibly see. But death is not the final word. God is saying, my grace is bigger than death. I really think that's what's going on in Romans 1 as Paul is is laying out who Jesus is. Sometimes we look and, and we hear Paul's description and we say, well, 
he's talking about descending from David, and then he's talking about being the Son of God, and perhaps what he's doing is talking about the two natures of Christ, that he's both uh, fully divine and, and fully human. And, and I'm not sure how that relates to everything else going on in Romans 1, but, but maybe that's what his point is. Well, even though that's a, a truth, I think that Paul actually has this promise in mind. Yes, Jesus is descended from David, according to human nature. But then the question comes up, he died. And Messiah is not the person that's supposed to die. If we were to really understand this promise, Messiah was the one that was supposed to to live and to reign forever. Messiah is the one that's actually supposed to defeat enemies, not to be crucified by enemies. So Paul goes on. Descended from David by the flesh, that he was declared Son of God. Remember our passage. Son of God, representative, Messiah, King. Declared. Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. Paul's hitting that idea that is in this promise that God will raise up a son from the seed of David. He's pointing to something that we often overlook about grace. It transcends our limits. God blows past our boundaries. The things in which we limit him and say he must work within this constraint. But God is never limited. His power is not confined by the, by the confines of death. We Look at the, the way that, that Jesus approaches Martha and Mary in, John, in uh, John 11, as Lazarus has died. Martha comes up to him and says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But now it's too late. You could have done something when he was still alive, but now the page has turned. It's over. Jesus needed to show her. No. My power's not confined within what your restrictions are. Lazarus, get up. Come out of the tomb. We put so many confines on what God can do. We think we... We know his, the extent of his power, but again and again he says, no, that's not my limit. What are the limits you're placing on his grace? We know it whenever it comes out to say, God, you must do this, or else there is no life. I can't imagine a good world beyond this point, beyond this thing happening. God, there is no life on the other side of a broken relationship, so please rescue this. God, there is no life on the other side of this illness, so please heal me. God, there is no life on the other side of me losing this job, so so God, preserve it. There is no life if I fail, God, so prevent me from being embarrassed and losing here. Keep my children safe. Guard my nest egg. God, there's no life on the other side of those things. God says, you don't understand. I have no limits. My grace doesn't have limits. Death won't confine me. Anything we put on God as a way in which we think he has to work won't confine me. His grace is establishing a kingdom that shall reign forever and ever. 
And that implies not only will the king reign forever and ever, but all of his subjects will reign forever or will be there forever and ever. What are the limits that you're putting on God and his grace? Listen to this wonderful no that God gives to David, for it saves him from his own small kingdom and opens him up to this grace that's unmeasured, vast, and free. Let's pray.